And now hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, concerning the genealogy of Jesus. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Matthias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Math, son of Matthias, son of Simeon, son of Josek, son of Jodah, son of Jonan, son of Rasa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Maliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matthiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reub, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arathaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Kinnon, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. Happy New Year. Hope you're off to a great start to New Year. New year. May this be a year in which you grow richly in the knowledge and the love of Jesus Christ. I know some of you must be here thinking, did the scripture reader just read the correct passage? Right? Some of you got to be here thinking, was that a mean joke on, by Lawrence on somebody? Is that, is that it? He's not just preaching on just that, right? I mean, come on, raise your hand. Did anybody think that as she was reading the scripture? Nobody? Wow, you guys have a lot of trust in us. Okay. <laughs> it's not a joke. Our message today is coming from a genealogy. The purpose is to help those who are pregnant or one day be pregnant uh, pick out some good names for their children. There's some good ones in there, really good ones. My favorite being Arfaxad, Zerubbabel. Arfaxad is my favorite one, though. So um, if you guys name your child Arfaxad in the future, you're welcome. So there you go. Just kidding. That's not my reason for the text today. Our sermon series for the last few weeks and for the next few months is in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be spending through all the way through May in this rich, rich book. Here in chapter 3, we start off with the story of John the Baptist, and now we've covered John the Baptist in previous sermon series, most recently when we went through the book of Mark. So I wanted to preach on something that's a little different here in Luke, and, and that's what this genealogy at the end of Luke is. It's different from other books of the gospel, or other gospels. Now, we'll be doing this a lot with the sermons coming up. We will intentionally try to cover the events or passages that are more unique to Luke than to the other gospels, so that we get a fuller picture of why Luke is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanting to pair, share what he did. Does that make sense? 
So at times where we can, we're going to kind of deviate a little bit of intentionally choosing the passages that are more unique to Luke than through the other Gospels. You with me so far? Does that make sense? Okay. So now I'm fully aware that most of you will get to a genealogy in the Bible and just skip right past it. And to be completely honest with you, I don't blame you. I mean, they seem like a bunch of random names of most people you don't know. I mean, honestly, when you get to a genealogy, it's like son of, son of, son of, and you're like, who, 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 who? So why even waste your precious time reading the Bible, reading it, right? And those of you who are like, no, I don't ever do that. I'm way too holy. Okay, good for you. <laughs> good job. Not me. But man, can I tell you guys, when you have the chance, the ability, the commentary, and the, the resources to dive into the word, amazing nuggets Incredible truths can come out. The Bible is absolutely incredible. It has more tension, twists, and turns than any novel. It's more informative and accurate than any history book or encyclopedia. It's more creative than any of the fancy sci-fi books. That's my secret, you know, my, my, uh, my kind of like my books, I, my go-to books I like to read. That's, I'm a little ashamed to say that I do. It has more intense the love story than any other romance novel. A professor once said, it is a living book. It acts upon you when you read it. God speaks to you through it. Your life gets direction from it. Your soul feeds upon it. Your mind is renewed by it. Faith comes from hearing it. The Holy Spirit spoke it. Your life is encouraged by it. So even the genealogy can speak to us. I found personally that, honestly, some of the genealogies can offer some of the most rewarding and exciting bits of information that you would not glean just by a casual reading. Sometimes the richest nuggets, the biggest jewels, are hidden in the hardest to reach places. And sometimes when we have to get our pickaxe out, our shovels out, our headlamps out, and dig a little deeper, we uncover some incredible, incredible gems. The genealogies in the Bible are some of the deepest and hardest passages in the Bible. And from the surface, they look barren, they look bare, they don't look like there's much there. But underneath, when we break through, there's often riches and jewels to be found. How do we know that we can find riches even in the genealogies? Because scripture is there for a reason, and God put them there for a reason, and it takes up much space. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, we read that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So God intended every chapter, every verse, every word in the Bible to be profitable for teaching. So yes, even genealogies. In fact, there's large portions of genealogies in the Bible, so it must mean a lot. One of my favorite sermons, I remember hearing one time, this is back when I was a kid in high school, I had a pastor at my church and he taught a sermon on genealogies in the book of Genesis. And I remember distinctly him talking about if he had a genealogy named after him and his family, it'd be like Bob, son, uh, and then he'd have his son's name. I can't remember what his son's name was, but son of Bob, and he's a headbanger because he'd always bang his head against stuff. And it's just a way of just sharing a, a nugget of genealogy to share, though, that God has a plan and the number and the lineage of God's lineage and man's lineage, and it just showed this beautiful truth of Scripture in it. And I still remember this. That was a sermon I heard when I was a junior in high school. I still remember out of a genealogy. We see genealogies in Genesis, in Numbers. We see it in Chronicles. We see it in Ezra. We see it in Matthew. We saw it here in Luke 3. So we know that genealogies are there for a purpose, and it's there to teach us something. In this one in particular, I want you to see there's some incredible nuggets and rich meaning and significance out of the genealogy in Luke chapter 3. 
So we're gonna go through this kind of quickly. I'm gonna kind of go through some of the genealogies. I'm gonna point out a couple verses, but then I'm gonna go through the main points and the, the gems that we can get out of this genealogy. It says, Luke chapter three, verse 23. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. In Greek society, this was the age that most men entered their public service. Up until that age, they'd be learning their craft or their, or, or their craft or their trade. And at 30, they'd be like, this is now my own practice. It was same for the Hebrew people, but especially for the Levitical priesthood. Levites did not start to serve in the temple until they were 30. So this is also the age at which David became king of Israel. So there's significance, even in that one little statement, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. You ever wonder why he waited to 30? Why not 21? Why not 25? Why not 26? Why not 18? You just, you know, it's Jesus. He knew everything. He didn't have to like learn more. He wasn't training more. But it was intentional. There's intentionality. There's an order to this. He wanted to show that he wanted to start his, priest, his journey of a priest, the same time the Levitical priest would start their journey. Guys, there's so much intentionality in the Bible. It says in Luke 3.23, he says, he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So obviously those people would naturally assume that Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary. And Luke corrects him here by saying that Jesus was only the supposed son of Joseph, we who know that it was a virgin birth. But there's another way of understanding and looking at this. It was looking at this as, as if the writer was writing into a ledger, as if this writing on, this is an official record of the birth of Jesus. It's, it's almost as if Luke wanted to present an official statement. I say, here's my official statement of who Jesus is. It's an official ledger. And obviously at that time period, if you're giving public documents, if you're doing a genealogy, the Greeks and the Romans who had a low view of women wouldn't use a woman's genealogy, wouldn't use a woman's name. So he starts off his official document, his official ledger, saying he's the supposed son of Joseph. So when Jesus was born, his genealogy was recorded in ledgers, and they wouldn't write down the name, Mary's name, so they put down Joseph's name instead. But something different happens here. It's Joseph's name initially, but it's not Joseph's genealogy. Did you guys know that, by the way? A little tidbit here. In Matthew, it's Joseph's genealogy. In Luke, it's not Joseph's genealogy. It's Mary's genealogy. Mary's not changing the legal record. Luke is not changing the legal record. He can't include Mary's name, but he can put down in parentheses, it's through Joseph's name. This is a legal record, but he's not supposedly, he's not really uh, Jesus' father. Anybody who knew Jesus and knew Joseph at that time knew that Mary, knew that Mary's father was Heli, Heli. How would you put it? I don't even know how you pronounce that. I'm just going to go with Heli. Heli? Heli. And Joseph's father was named Jacob. Therefore, when they saw the next name in the list, Heli, at the end of Luke 3.23, they would immediately recognize that they were not reading Mary's genealogies, not Joseph's. And so here's this legality of the genealogy, intentionally put in as a ledger brought forth, it's a legal ledger, but it's doing a genealogy through Mary instead of Joseph. And we put all this together, it makes sense that when you compare the genealogy to Luke chapter three in Matthew, Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus was a perfect Jew and legal heir to the throne of David. World lineage was always passed down through the father. So Matthew draws Jesus' lineage through Joseph, the adopted father, the legal father of Jesus. And it shows that his legal claim to the kingship and to the throne of David. Matthew wants us to show that Jesus is the heir to the Davidic kingdom. 
Jesus is the king. But Luke, on the other hand, wants to show that Jesus was a man, that he was fully human. That he can't draw the world lineage through Joseph because Joseph was not the bio, Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph. Jesus was, however, the biological son of Mary. And so that is what he does. He draws a physical lineage through Mary back to David, to Abraham, and all the way back to the first man, Adam. So Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, which in this genealogy means that Jesus was supposed son of Joseph. Not biologically, but legally. Not physically, but as was recorded in the ledgers. So Jesus was the supposed son of Joseph, but really of Mary. And Mary's father was, as we read, Heli, Heli. I don't know how to say it. Now, I don't want to comment on all the names in Luke chapter 3. There's a bunch of names. There are things that we can say about each one, stories behind each name, and lessons that can be learned. Some of it, though, would have to get from places outside of the Bible. It would have to be speculation. For example, we know nothing of Mary's father. The Bible contains not another word about him, but we can speculate what kind of father he might have been in order to raise a daughter like Mary. But such speculation would carry us way beyond the pages of Scripture, and I want to stay far away from doing that. So let's just pick out a few names that you might know that we do know something about. Down in Luke 3, it says one of my favorite names. It says Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. Is that fun to say? Right? You're welcome. You can go home now, and if you're having a bad day, just struggling, you can be like, Zerubbabel. <laughs> all better. It's all better after that. Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, this is the Zerubbabel who led the Jews back to Israel from Babylon. He's a very important figure in the Bible, and you can read about him in the opening chapters in the book of Ezra. If you skip down, we read about Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Hopefully, these are names you recognize. Yes? Biblically literate church? Yay. You should be familiar with them. These are great people in Israelite history. David being the greatest king in Israelite history. Boaz is talked about in the book of Ruth, and all this shows that even Mary is of the royal line, but not the heir through, not through the heir Solomon, of Solomon, as recorded in Matthew. It said Mary's through one of David's other sons, Nathan, right? So Mary is an heir of David, but not through Solomon, but through Nathan. Why is that significant? Well, let me tell you why. Because Joseph, while in direct lineage of, of, of Solomon, is the heir to the throne, but one of Solomon's descendants named Jeconiah was such an evil king that God pronounced that no descendant of Jeconiah would ever sit on the royal throne of David. So Joseph, although he was technically and legally of the royal line of David through Solomon, could never have sat on the throne because that line had been spiritually cursed by God. So there's this conundrum. How does David's line continue to the promise? Here we see that although the legal line was traced through Solomon to Joseph, the spiritual line was traced through Nathan to Mary. So however you look at it, Jesus is the heir to the throne of David both legally and spiritually. So through the blood, Jeconiah was cursed, and his blood never actually became the, 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 the heir. But through, through, through Mary, he became the heir through Nathan. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? Isn't that incredible? Just that little tidbit of information shows the sovereignty of God acting in such an incredible way that his words come true, and he controls even lineage. This is an amazing genealogy that takes us from David all the way back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ultimately to Adam. And this genealogy paints a picture that Luke is trying to say that Mary is giving birth to a human child. Who is God? But he's also human. 
Now, we've already seen one of the gems in the fact that Jesus is the heir to the throne of David, both legally and spiritually. And it's an amazing fulfillment of prophecy that I want you to count as one of those nuggets that we just gleaned from this genealogy. But there's so much more beyond this. We, we often look at genealogies, the list is boring, but it's like a gem, it's multifaceted. There's so many things that first glance might look like a, a rock or a dirty piece of glass, it turns out to be a diamond. So I want you to cover away some of these truths. So here's some truths, some, some facets of the jewel that I want us to look at and see. Number one, our faith is rooted in history. First of all, simply from the fact that this is a list of names, the gem begins to take shape. Genealogies tell us that our faith is rooted in history. Christianity is not a religion based on somebody's imagination. It's a relationship with God rooted in history that stood the test of time. It's helpful to remember that there are a great multitude of believers who have gone before us that have faced the same questions and struggles that we have faced and have come through. The writer of Hebrews mentions this in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. This chapter is kind of a, a genealogy of faithful people. It's a list of faithful men and women who went before us and despite all the odds remained faithful. The writer calls them a great cloud of witnesses. Genealogies remind us that we are not alone. That our faith is rooted in thousands of years and millions of people who have gone before us. We're part of a story that connects us to the past and to the future. We're part of a grand narrative. There's this story that God is weaving, and that's one of the most incredible things. Guys, has anybody ever done one of those ancestor tests? Anybody? Yes? No? I did one. You know, and what do they, they kind of tell you where, like, you know, um, your DNA comes from? Have you ever done one of those, though, that kind of trace your line back, though? What are those things called? Where, like, you're... Your parents came to America, like five, like your great-great-grandparents came to America through Ellis Island at this time. Have right? you guys done any of those? Those are cool. There's something amazing about knowing your connectedness, your history, knowing that you had a great-great-great-grandparent who did this, you know? I love that. There's something, something, something that makes me, attaches me to a sense of something bigger than myself. Guys, can I tell you this right now? As a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Christ, you're part of a family and a history that's Huge. That's incredible. And when you read the Bible, these are, this is your family. These are your ancestors. Do you understand that you're part of a story that has gone, been going on for so long that it will go on after you? You're connected to something bigger. So number one, our faith is rooted in history. Number two, our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. We already saw this a little bit in the fact that God brought Christ both through Solomon and Nathan so that Christ could be both king legally and spiritually and not be thwarted by the, the evilness of King Jeconiah. That shows that God is incredibly sovereign to accomplish his purposes in this sinful world no matter what happens. God from day one planned to bring Christ into this world as the Messiah and nothing could stop him from accomplishing his sovereign will. Nothing. But we also see that God is sovereign in the lives of individuals as well. Guys, we can be certain that life was not grand for each of these people, right? We can be sure that many of them, if not all of them, had trials and tribulations and troubles. For some of them at times, life probably just seemed pointless, horrible at times. And maybe that's the way you feel about your life right now. Maybe you feel like your life is in shambles. There's no purpose. Maybe you feel like, what am I even doing? 
take comfort in the fact that even those individual lives, even though all the struggles and troubles they've been through, it had a purpose, it had a meaning, it had meaning. God was doing something even in troubled times. God has been great in store for them. The promised Messiah came through them. You never know what God can do through you or what God can bring from you even in the hardest of times. My people, there are times when you go through tribulations that me even thinking about makes me want to weep. And I get that. And I know that it's hard, but I want to share with you, will you take heart? Our God is sovereign and you never know what he's producing in you. But can I tell you this? Whatever hardship you're going through, it's not meaningless and it's not pointless. That's the problem we run into. We get to this temptation where we think, why is this happening to me? What's the point of it? It's all pointless. It's all meaningless. Can I tell you that it's not? Under a sovereign God, God is doing something, either in you or through you. And we might not see it. It might be hard for us to grasp it. By faith, we can believe that there's purpose in it. God is sovereign. Amen? That's what genealogy can tell us. That he's sovereign in his purpose in the lives of individuals. So whatever you're currently going through, he's sovereignly at work in your life also. Our faith is rooted in history. Our God is sovereign. And three, our God is orderly. He's a list maker, which is weird for me because I am not a list maker. My wife's a list maker. My wife's the one that makes lists for things and responds. Sometimes she makes lists just because she likes crossing out the things on the list, just for that satisfaction of that. That's what makes our house work. Because if it was up to me, our house would be a mess. God is orderly. He brings order out of chaos. He remembers and he records. Psalm 56 says he records in a book the times you have cried. Do you hear that? Literally, read Psalm 56 sometime. It actually says on there that the times that you've wept, he recorded those times. He knows when you even weep. And he cares. He counts your tears. Isn't that amazing? He takes notice that even when you weep. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6 tells us that God does not forget our labor of love, and those things are recorded by him. Malachi 3 says that those that feared the Lord spoke often to one another, and the Lord listened to them and wrote what was being said in the book of remembrance. So when you talk to, about God to one another, God listens to what you're saying about him, and he writes it down. He's like a journal. Oh, Lauren said this about me. This is nice. Not like that, but I'm just saying. It's like he's keeping a scrapbook. Oh, yay. No, he doesn't really keep a scrapbook. He might. I don't know. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. The Bible also tells us that he keeps a list of things done in the body, whether good or bad. There are books in heaven which record your words, your thoughts, your deeds. That might be encouraging. It also might be scary, depending on what you're feeling like at the moment. I'm just saying. But the Bible paints a picture of something else, of, of lists and of records. It paints a picture of almost two books. It gives us an image of almost two books, if you will. The book of life and the Lamb's book of life. The, the book of life is every human being ever born, ever existed, is written in this book of life. In other words, it means that God knows every single person born, every person that ever existed, ever known. But the, there's another book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And they're the ones who've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're the ones who've accepted the merit of Jesus and are clothed with his righteousness. And so there's this idea, and guys, does it mean that God literally has a book in heaven with every single name written down, or he has a typewriter, or has a quill pen, you know? I don't know why I thought of a quill pen, but so it has to be a quill pen. 
No, what I'm saying is there's this idea of orderliness to a good God. That he creates out of chaos, he has order. Out of chaos, he creates uh, systems. There's a truth, there's justice, because God is a God of justice and order. Do you understand what I'm saying? And because there is justice and because there's order, guys, there is a reality of something. There is a reality that there is a book called the Lamb's Book of Life for those who know, who've accepted and received salvation. Because there's justice in this world, we need a right and a wrong. We need a judge. And we need to know what right and wrong looks like. We need to know what perfection and holiness is. And because of that, because of our need for justice, we need a God that says then condemns evil and sin. And then we need a God who can rescue us from it. That's what God does. He's a God both of justice and grace, of mercy and love. And he records and brings order out of chaos because if he wasn't like that, then we wouldn't know what order is. We wouldn't know what justice is. We wouldn't know what beauty and righteousness is. And then the question today, I hope the question for you is, do you know what it means to be in the Lamb's book of life? To confidently see that my name is written down and it can never be crossed out, can never be blotted out, can never be erased. I'm known, I'm loved, I have purpose. And not by anything that I did and my own merit, anything that I earned by my own effort or my own goodness, but because I've chosen to accept the free gift of love that Jesus accomplished and achieved, I'm in the Lamb's book of life. If today you're here and you don't know what that's like, the beauty and the confidence, the understanding and the hope, the ability to face the hardest of times because you know you're in the Lamb's book of life, I beg of you and I plead with you today, may today be the day you know. May today you choose to accept the salvation and the gift of love that Jesus freely offers. God is a God of order. He's a keeper of lists, and the genealogies show us that. Number four, God knows your name, and your story matters. I love this. This is a list of names, and they're, they're names, and they're, they're obviously just a list of names, and right now they can mean nothing to us, but for God, he knows the name, and he knows the story. He knows the name, and he knows the story. God just didn't... This list of names, he didn't need these names, didn't need these people to accomplish the will. This is the God of the universe who spoke and galaxies existed. Galaxies were formed, whom all of life hinges on. He didn't need these people, but God chose to use them to make their lives have significance and to be known. My people, can you hear me very well? God knows your name. He knows your name. He knows the name that you call yourself, not the one that you've just presented people to. He knows you. If you feel forgotten, if you feel insignificant, if you feel that there is nothing special about you, if you feel overlooked, please remember this, that he knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. He records your tears. My people, you have significance. You are important to him. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. You're crafted in his image. You're not alone in this world. You're not forgotten. You're not overlooked. God knows your name. And it's important, and you have a role to play, and you're a part of this incredible story. Do not forget this.
God knows your name. And I know there are times when you feel like he doesn't. I know there are times in your life when you feel like, why should he? But he chooses to. He chooses to know you and to love you and to use you. That's what this story tells us. That's what this genealogy tells us. Our facts ad. He knows that name. Now, I will always know that name because that's a good name. But our facts ad. He uses our facts ad. He knew our facts ad. He knows his story and all his flaws and all his issues. But Jesus came from him. How incredible is that? Our facts ad's out there. The Zerubbabel's out there. He knows you. Amen? Lastly, this genealogy shows us that salvation is for all. Salvation is for all. There are some in Luke's day who believe that salvation was only for Jews. But here in Luke chapter 3, the genealogies go all the way back to Adam, the father of, of all. Rather, not just back to Abraham. Right? Because he could have easily made a choice. Luke could have been like, I'm going to stop my genealogy at Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish people. His father Abraham. Had been, you know what I'm saying? He could have stopped right there. But he said, I'm going to go back all the way to Adam to show the humanness of Jesus, but also show that he is the savior of all mankind. Even more so, Jesus came for Jews and Gentiles alike. We also see that through the lineage done through Mary, that women were esteemed and highly valued. It was intentional, obviously to show the prophecy being fulfilled, Nathan and Jeconiah, all that issue, but also to show that God values women. It wasn't just through men who were saved, or it wasn't just through a man, but it was through Mary's lineage that we see this connection. And even in the genealogy in Matthew, we have non-Jews, we have Gentiles in, and women included in the genealogy. This type of genealogy wouldn't have made any sense during that period of time. But the Bible was intentional. It would make no sense to go through a woman. It would make no sense to have uh, Gentiles, if you're a Jewish, try to show your Jewish king, kingliness. But the Bible is so intentional, so intentional, that to have women, to have Gentiles, to show that the gospel message, salvation is for all. Jew and Gentile, men and women, for the lowest and to the highest, to everybody. We see at the end of genealogy that in Adam, mankind had a beginning through the creation of God, but in Jesus Christ, we have a new beginning through the recreation and regeneration of God. Salvation in the Bible has always been meant for all nations, tribes, and tongues. The Israelites were called to be a set-apart kingdom, to be a blessing for all the nations. That call is still ours today as a church. We are to be global in our sharing of the gospel. The good news is for all people. Salvation is for all. The genealogy shows us that. My people, can I tell you this? I was, the idea of keeping the good news of the gospel to ourselves seems the most contrary thing that the Bible, most contrary to the Bible, the thing I've ever heard in my life. But the fact is, so many of us in the churches do that exact same thing. We think the church is meant to just take care of us. We think the gospel is meant to make us feel good. We often act like and live like the gospel's meant so that we can grow a little smarter and wiser, make better decisions, and feel good about ourselves. The gospel's always been meant to be a blessing to the nations. 
The kingdom is always meant to advance. The kingdom is meant to be shared and the good news is meant to be preached. My people, we're called to preach the gospel to the nations, to the ends of the earth, to everybody around us. May we never, ever be a church that only cares internally. May we always be a church to be a blessing to the world and the nations. Amen? I pray that this dive into genealogy was beneficial to you this morning. I pray that you see how amazing the scriptures are and turn to see how incredible our God is. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this genealogy that showed us the beauty of your sovereignty and the fact that our faith is rooted in history, God, and that, that you know our name, that our story matters, and that you're orderly, and that salvation is for all. God, may we rest comfortably knowing that we're in the Lamb's book of life and we're called to advancing your kingdom. God, will you move in our church? May we always be a church that looks outward and shares the gospel with the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time in our worship service, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. And this is a time when... Um, brothers and sisters around the world come and take bread and, and wine or juice, um, and we remember. And here at Waypoint, we kind of, we do it twice a month, and the first Sunday of the month, we take time to confess. We believe there's multiple elements and multiple things that happen when we, as the church, participate in the, in the Lord's Supper, and one of them is confession. So we're going to do that. We normally do it during the prayer time, but we're so excited that Massimo is here, so we wanted to have that be our, our prayer time. And So we're going to do it now. And what, what I want you to do is, I'm going to read from 1 John 1, nine, And it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And sometimes this is a little confusing because we're taught as Christians that all our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future on the cross. So why would we need to come and confess? Why did Jesus give us this meal as something that we do regularly? And John gives us the answer that we're confessing our we're forgiven, but we're confessing our sins. We're, we're giving them to God, laying them at his feet. Literally, we're exhaling so we can breathe back in his broken body and his spirit. In the Corinthians passage that we read every time, there's a longer section that we don't read each, each Sunday, and it says this. It says, you know, Paul starts off, what I pass on to you, and then he quotes Jesus at the Lord's Supper. And then he says this, and I'm going to read it this morning before our confession time. He says, so every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Then he says something that is in their original context, but it has meaning for us today as the, as the modern church. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner is guilty, sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For you eat the bread or drinking the cup without honoring the body of Christ. We are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And I don't have time. We've preached a sermon on this. I don't have time to go into all the details. But the, the essence of this is right now, you can come to this table as a follower of Jesus. All of you are open to this table. But... Paul does want us to prepare our hearts before this and make sure that we, we are in a state and a place where we've 
we're confessing our sins to God. We're forgiven. We are forgiven people, but we need this time, this, this sacrament. And we, we, you can confess anytime. You can confess in your room. Uh, you can confess when you're driving in your car. You, you can confess to one another. We're called to do that in, the gospel, in James' his letter. But at this time, we come together as corporately saying we're confessing our own sins and then our sins as a church and our sins as God's people. So I want to take some time and just give you a, a few moments silently to uh, just exhale the junk, lay it, give it to God, and just say, God, I'm, I'm confessing these, my brokenness and my sin to you. And as a symbolic gesture, I want you to literally exhale. No, nothing magical about it. It's not supernatural. It's just exhale. Now breathe in. And just breathe in the mercy and the grace that were given to us of the cross and the new life and the spirit that was poured out upon us, all of us who are his followers at Pentecost. And that, in that posture, we're going to come and receive the meal. Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you whenever. And then he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. So we're going we're gonna to do that this morning. Here at Waypoint, we practice something called intinction, and that means that you're going to walk up. The folks over there will walk up to a station here. The folks in this aisle will walk here each to each section and you will be handed a piece of bread and, and read the, the, the liturgy will be read to you. And then you, you take the bread and you dip it in the cup. You have a couple options. You can eat it immediately. You can take it back to your seat um, and take some time to reflect before you take it. Uh, we'd love to have people have a chance at the altar, but we don't have a super large sanctuary. And there's a lot of you here this morning. So if you want to do that, that's okay. But... We probably don't have a ton of space, but definitely you can do that. And if you need a, all all of it is gluten free up front. And if you, but if you need um, an option for uh, sanitary reasons or something, there are a couple stations in the back where you can get an individual package uh, uh, with the bread and the juice. So let's uh, let's pray, and then I'm going to ask the servers to come forward as we as we take the Lord's Supper. God, this is your meal. We accept your grace. We accept your forgiveness. We thank you that we can come and confess corporately, God. And we thank you for forgiveness that was given to us on the cross and the new life that we have in your covenant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the servers come forward.
Is, is there anyone who needs us to come to their seat? Father, we thank you for this meal that we can come together and remember Christ's death and remember his body that was broken and his blood that was shed so that we could have new life, so that we could be free. May we go out as people who live in freedom, who love others, love you. May we be people of your kingdom, forgiving people. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for each person here. I pray that they can just walk in your grace and your spirit as we trust you with each day. We give this, all this to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.